Davidovich, and this is episode seven of the What We Talk About When We Talk About Mind podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Oren Hargraves. He's an American lexicographer that's published several books and other related contributions to the field of dictionaries, lexicography, idioms, slang, and other topics of interest to psychology and language. He attended the University of Chicago, where he received an undergraduate degree, and he's currently affiliated with the University of Colorado at Boulder. He also holds a prominent position in the Dictionary Society of North America, which is holding a conference in the next few months at the end of May. Today, we're going to talk about a number of interesting topics that range from the interdisciplinary nature of making dictionaries, working on them, as well as how venues like conferences are very important for getting like-minded people together to continue to make progress and share ideas. We also talk about ChatGPT, a little bit about artificial intelligence, as well as the important role that computational linguistics plays in the field of lexicography. I'm very excited to discuss with him what he talks about when he talks about mine. Our book recommendation for this episode is going to be the Oxford Latin Dictionary, which was completed fully by 1982, and the chief editor is P.G.W. Guare. It's a Latin dictionary that contains close to 2,300 pages and has many terms that you would ever hope to find in the absolute de facto standard for advanced study when it comes to the classical Latin language. Again, the book recommendation, if you're interested in advanced study of the Latin language, would be the Oxford Latin Dictionary, and it was fully completed by editor-in-charge P.G.W. Blair in 1982. The word for the day is pronounced srtse. Srtse is a word that generally means heart, or it can mean mind, or emotion, or will, and it comes to us from the modern-day Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian language family that are in the Balkans. The word srce is more closely related to the English word heart, and the three consonants at the beginning are known as a consonant cluster, S-R-C-E. So the way you pronounce three consonants in this specific language is you have to treat the R as if it has an U or a vowel in front of it, so it's pronounced srce. And one use of this expression would be and this translates to my heart communicates or speaks the language of love. So the hat for the day contains the word which gets translated as heart in languages like Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian. Hey, Warren, how are you doing today? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. It's a very cold day here. It's 10 degrees and we have new snow on the ground, but uh, it's warm. It's warm at home. <laughs> I'd like to learn more about your, your background, your research foci, and some of your areas of interest. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Sure. My background, well, let's say the, my background of interest is, uh, is certainly in language, and that, in a nutshell, is why I became a lexicographer. I studied, well, the program I was in, you, you have some experience of uh, University of Chicago, so you, you know what it's like. I was in a program called General Studies in the Humanities, which 
it's it's what it sounds like a, a, a good solid humanities background education and when i was finished i immediately went on a vacation and i took two books with me uh language by sapir and on language by jesperson because i think finally at the end of my my college degree i knew what i wanted to study language I think I, I've always been interested in writing because I've always been a good reader, especially as a child. I think some of my most intense experiences came from reading. And so I was interested in how you could go about creating such an intense experience for someone else simply through the, the, the medium of language. So writing interested me. And by small stages, that drew me to lexicography, that is defining words. And that's what I've been doing for about 30 years now. Other things I've done along the way, like teaching semantics, which I, I, I do currently from time to time, and doing some NLP research, those came about completely on the basis of my background in lexicography. Without having been a lexicographer, those opportunities wouldn't have presented themselves. I believe you mentioned that you were currently working at the University of Colorado at Boulder? Yeah, I'm a contract instructor, what they call a lecturer here, which means I don't have a full-time job there, but when they when they have a course available for me to teach that I want to teach, and currently that's only one course, semantics, I teach it. It's an upper-level undergraduate course. It's required for all linguistics majors and minors. And it's just what it sounds like. It's a, it's a course about how language acquires and conveys, encodes meaning. And to my surprise, it's it's kind of a revelation often for students. Even all of my students have been in linguistics for two to three years, but they've most of them have just had the barest introduction to semantics as a subfield of linguistics. And when they start to understand how wide and deep semantics is, it really uh, it really opens up a lot of doors and leads them to think about language in a in a completely different and bigger way than they did before. So it's very satisfying for me to be able to open that door or to to push it open for them. For those people that might be unfamiliar with terms like lexicography and semantics, would you be able to provide, pretty basic definitions for some of these terms in the way that you understand them? Sure. I'll start with lexicography. Lexicography is the practice in the, the field of finding words, writing definitions of words for dictionaries. A person who writes definitions for dictionaries is a lexicographer. And that's been my pr profession for, uh, for 30 years now. It's not as easy a job to get as it used to be, certainly in English anyway, but it... Uh, it's a, an important and interesting profession, especially for anyone who's interested in language and meaning and how they work. So that's lexicography and lexicographer. Semantics, as I said briefly before, is the study of meaning and language, how it is that language encodes meaning, how we can be confident that when we produce language, we are conveying meaning to someone else and how it is that when we read or hear language from someone else, we can take meaning from it. We can, we can assign meaning to the words, sentences, phrases that we hear. The foundation of semantics is semiology, that is, the study of signs and how it is that signs can stand for things. In other words, 
we have a word banana. And if I say banana, it immediately conjures an image in your mind. And that works because, because of this basic notion of, of uh, semiology or semiotic. A thing can stand for another thing. I don't have to hold up a banana to give you the idea of a banana. I could just say banana because you get that. Animals are capable of that connection between a sign and a thing it stands for. But the ability of humans to interpret, manipulate, create signs far surpasses that of any other species. And that's why we have language, because if we didn't have the complexity of semiotic representation that language represents, we wouldn't have language. That's what it depends on. Thanks for the very thorough and thoughtful answer. And I'd like to circle back with you a little bit later in our discussion about the importance of language and its significance with respect to psychology. Now, when I first started looking at the field of lexicography and I started looking at some of the different societies and groups online, my impression was that it was a pretty small community of individuals. And a lot of times the only opportunity for people to get together with other lexicographers on a formal basis was through conferences and through associations. So I know, like you mentioned, you're part of the Dictionary Society of North America. So could you talk more about that society that you're in and a little bit later about the conference? So the society has been around for about 50 years, and I don't know how it ranks age-wise with other lexicographic societies, but I, I think it's one of the older ones. If there is an older one, it would be Eurolex, which is the European Lexicographic Association. There are five or, five or six of these around the world. All of us know about each other. We often tend to go to each other's conferences. And there's even a, a, a global organization, very, very loosely structured, called Global Lex, which ties together all of the regional lexicographic societies. Uh, but as you say, it's a small world. I didn't realize quite how small until I, I, I started actually defining words and meeting other lexicographers. Today, so many lexicographers are freelance, far more freelance than work for a publisher. And so when a publisher or some other organization wants to put together a dictionary, they are more likely than not to call up freelance lexicographers. And so over the years, you end up working with the same people over and over again on different dictionaries for different publishers. And I don't want to give the impression that... Uh, you're not getting your money's worth because the same people are writing, writing every dictionary. <laughs> uh, because every dictionary has its own audience in mind, its own guidelines, its own style manual. And as lexicographers, that, that, that's our job, to write the dictionary that the publisher uh, wants us to write based on criteria that that publisher gives to us uh, and, and other resources that we have to use, such as corpora. So over the, over the course of years, you get to know just about everybody else in your field, not only through attending conferences, but through working on the same projects. And obviously, over the course of 30 years, the world has become a lot more virtual uh, because of the internet. And today, people who work on the same dictionary can be in five different countries and never actually meet in person, but, but can meet virtually like you and I are meeting now and get to know each other that way. The great thing about our conferences is that we get to see people in person 
uh, every couple of years that we may not see at all in the intervening time. Wonderful. And for the conference that's coming up in a few months, the, the 24th conference, could you share a little bit more information about that, about some of the topics that are going to be covered, as well as what the real value add is to the material or the program there if somebody's interested in linguistics? Sure. We're super excited about this conference for a number of reasons. First of all, it's our first one in four years. Normally, we meet every two years, but obviously, because of the pandemic, we could only have a virtual conference two years ago. Two other reasons that I think it's going to be supercharged this year. Uh, we have a focus on the lexicography of indigenous North American languages, and we've been able to, to tap so much talent to, to talk about that subject. Uh, we have a whole group coming from Canada. I think we have eight presenters coming from Canada who are going to speak on work that they're doing with Indigenous Canadian languages. We have probably half a dozen coming from the United States, working in languages spread all across the United States, Indigenous languages. And I think we have a couple of people from Mexico. So that's one focus of the conference. The other focus is uh, on the last day of the conference, one of the morning sessions is devoted to the use of lexicons in natural language processing. This came about because my first job at University of Colorado was with Martha Palmer, who's a, a, a very big name in the uh, natural language processing world. And as soon as as, as soon as I knew I, I would be the host of this upcoming conference, I approached Martha and asked her if she wanted to do a workshop because in fact, she hired me on the, on the basis of my work as a lexicographer. Because of projects that we were both loosely associated with, she, she knew who I was and I knew who she was before we even met. I taught a course in lexicography at CU in, in summer of 2011, uh, Linguistic Society Institute. And I told her I was thinking of moving back to Colorado. I'm from, I'm from here originally. And she said, oh, well, we'll come to see you. I'll give you a job. And she did. <laughs> uh, so now, 10 years after the fact, uh, I've given her a very small job, the job of uh, presenting this fascinating uh, workshop on the role of lexicons in natural language processing. So that's going to be a big draw. There's also a lot of interesting overlap between these two themes that I've just talked about, indigenous lexicography on one hand and NLP on the other. So much NLP and actually so much lexicography historically has been centered on Western languages, European languages. And most European languages, well, let's say most Indo-European languages, lend themselves very easily to the idea of lemmatization. And by that, I mean, we can take a word, look at it in its lemmatized form, its lemma, and that's everyone knows that that's the word that you look up you look up in the dictionary uh we know that that word may have inflections conjugations and so forth but when we look up that word we can be confident that we're going to find everything that we need to know that's not true in many many indigenous languages it's very hard to identify a lemma because lemmas in many indigenous languages don't don't occur in other words you never see the word in its completely uninflected form. It's always uh, has a bunch of prefixes or infixes or suffixes. And so if you're making a dictionary, 
of an indigenous indigenous language, what do you actually put in the dictionary? How do you enable someone using that dictionary to find that word and to find the meaning meaning of the word? So that's one area of overlap that I think NLP can help with. The other area that I think is of a lot of interest, and this again has to do with NLP being centered on Indo-European languages, is that there's a kind of commonality in the way that words and meaning match up in Indo-European languages. And the patterns that we see in Indo-European languages simply don't apply to many indigenous languages, languages from other language families. And so a lot of the things that we may think of as the core principles of lexicography and dictionary making don't work for indigenous languages. But I think computers can often come to the aid of bridging the gap between what we already know we can do for making dictionaries and how we can apply those principles to uh, indigenous languages. And the secret factor there, of course, is machine learning. Now that we can produce databases of, of any language in, in any alphabet, as long as we can do sufficient training in a, uh, an NLP setting, if we can gather enough training data and feed it to a machine learning uh, system, it can tell us things about, uh, about that language that maybe we don't see, especially from an outsider's view. A native speaker of, of, of an indigenous language may be able to tell us the things that we don't see. But, but even there, I think computational analysis already has told us things about our own languages that we didn't see before. And so it can work just as well on indigenous languages. And I hope open up areas of making lexicography, uh, lexicography for indigenous languages much more fruitful, useful, use, useful for the people who will actually use the dictionaries and make the dictionaries. Uh, I, I would love to see that come out of this conference. And we have all the people there that can make it happen. They just need to start talking to each other. I definitely agree. I have a couple responses based on the information that you provided. First one is the conference sounds like a really great event, not only just for a community of people that are lexicographers, but it seems to me quite evident based on everything you've said that lexicography is quite interdisciplinary. For example, you mentioned pretty liberal use of topics that are common in computer science, as well as data science in general. So first off, it sounds like this conference should be of high interest to individuals that are maybe doing artificial intelligence and a few other related fields of study. And before I move on to the other interesting comment I want to bring to your attention, I'd like to share with the audience, where can people go to learn more about the conference and perhaps go visit if they'd like? Sure. We have a very easy website, dictionarysociety.com. Right in the top banner, if you click on, on meetings, then you'll see DSNA24 in Boulder, Colorado. And from there, you can follow all the information. Registration for general attendees is not open yet, but I think it will be next week. Uh, we're just now in the process of registering our presenters, of whom there are about 60, I think, 50 to 60 presenters. Once they're all sorted out, then we will open up uh, registration to anyone who wants to come. We would like to see uh, a lot of people there, and especially a lot of young people 
who may be interested in dictionaries and lexicography and don't know how to get their foot in the door? I'll make sure to include a direct link to the website so that people can find right. more about the 24th Dictionary Society of North America conference. Now, the second part I wanted to comment about was to focus on indigenous language languages, excuse me. I have a little bit of experience because I had to study a bit of language called Nahuatl. Mm -hmm. It's it's indigenous to modern day Mexico, Mexico City, and the Nahuatl speaking peoples are what are commonly known as Aztecs, even though the name Aztec actually was coined by a person in the 1800s who got it from a neighboring tribe to the Nahuatl, and that was just a name that they called them, and, and it has very little to do from you know with the actual source culture. Now, I say that to bring to your attention a recent discussion that I had with individuals that represent an organization called Living Tongues, and I believe they're based in the Northwest or Oregon, and they make it a mission to digitize these indigenous languages that actually provide tools and software to help individuals actually do this on their own. And I find this information interesting because you said that we want to get more people talking to each other. I'm curious about your opinion on the level of cooperation or the opportunity for cooperation rather that exists with people of similar interests that may not be aware that each other party exists. In fact, that's one of the things that, uh, that, that we want to address at the conference, bringing people together who may not even know about each other. I think the emphasis on indigenous languages is incredibly important because you mentioned earlier that Indo-European languages hold the station of high importance when it comes to the scholarship and the influence. And I find the same phenomenon when I study ancient languages, a few of which are Semitic. And Semitic languages are not the same animal as Indo-European languages. And as I consider languages that are different from Indo-European ones, maybe separated by time, space, or culture, or what have you, I find that the role of the dictionary and the role of lexicography is very prominent. And I'll give you a specific example. When I studied Middle Egyptian or any ancient languages, I needed to have, at all points in time, not some of the points in time, at all points in time, I always needed to have the dictionary open in a couple form factors, such as a physical copy in front of me, and then maybe a consolidated list of vocabulary terms. From this, could you talk a little bit about how important dictionaries are and maybe why they would be taken for granted by a regular person who hasn't spent a career thinking about it? Well, I think in European languages, they're taken for granted because they've been around for, for more than 500 years. They, they were a novelty when they first emerged, like, well, everything is a novelty when it first emerges, right? But now, uh, and even though young people today don't think of the dictionary as a book, they don't think of it as something on their bookshelf. They think of it as something on their phone. We do take for granted the notion that if we need to know the meaning of a word, we can find it by looking in a dictionary or, you know, again, for a young person by asking their phone well, what it means. In European languages, that tradition has been established over the last uh, 500 years because people have been writing dictionaries. People need an authority in language. And I don't mean an authority that tells them how to use language, 
but an authority that tells them how language is used. If they read a word that they they don't understand, uh, they need to be able to look it up. Or if they want to use a word, but they're not quite sure what it means, they, they need to be able to look it up. So we take for granted that the dictionaries play a very important part in the life of a native speaker for the reasons that I've just outlined. And with reference to, to what you said, when you're studying another language, a language that is not yours, in a lot of ways, I think the need is even greater because, well, you run into a lot more words that you don't know. You hear a lot more words that you don't know. And, you know, it's great if you have a native speaker of that language at your right hand all the time, you can ask. But even then, you know, you don't want to wear out your welcome with that native speaker by asking them what everything means. So it's very handy to have a reference at hand, a dependable reference that will help you to decode words that you're not familiar with. And I'm more interested in what you said previously about how the paradigms or the models for building dictionaries for Indo-European languages doesn't quite work when it comes to indigenous languages and specifically use of prefixes, infixes, or having to add a suffix. And I can relate to this because from what I understand, my native language, which I was, I'm very lucky to know natively, was called Serbo-Croatian back then, but now it's Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, and so forth. And there are certainly a lot of nuances about that language that is very difficult for native English speakers to understand, even if they get a description or a section in a grammar. And one example I have is when we, in my language, add a PO prefix to a verb, what it does is it changes the action of the verb to be what's called the perfective aspect from the perspective of the subject of the verb. What that means is tangibly, I have a verb, glediti, which means to watch, not to see or observe, but specifically to watch something closely. And if I say to someone, gledi, it means, it means watch yourself or be careful. However, if I add that PO prefix and I say, pogledi, what that means in that perfective aspect, it means do the action of the verb of watching yourself as if you are an outsider physically observing yourself and not you. And when you say to someone, it means the closest comparison in English is look at yourself, look at, mm-hmm. look at the way you're behaving. So it changes the meaning quite a bit in a much more subjective way. And when I explain this to native English speakers, they find it quite bizarre and you're hard pressed to find this level of nuance in dictionaries, which really ties into the fact that I think dictionaries are extremely important, not just resources or books, but but also tools for people to express themselves more clearly with other people. And we may take for granted the things that we don't know. Could you share maybe any specific textual examples or any specific circumstances where the paradigms of Indo-European languages aren't a good fit for indigenous languages when it comes to the the work of compiling a dictionary or writing entries? What comes to mind for me, and and again, this is not with, uh, not an example from an indigenous language, but from a language that I was learning that didn't behave at all the way, the way English did. I was a, I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I lived in Morocco for three years. And in preparation for that, I studied Moroccan Arabic for, for three months. 
at the time there was a Moroccan dictionary put together by a, by an American university. Perhaps that's that's typical in a way that that the dictionary of a, a Middle Eastern dialect is put together by an American university because that's where the money is, right? But anyway, so after three months of study, I got to my site feeling very confident that I could do everything I needed to do in Arabic. And my confidence was just completely shattered within a couple of days because I got to my site and I found that people at my at my site, the village where I was going to live for two years, didn't talk in the textbook way that I had been uh, that I had been told that they would. There were many differences. I kept hearing words and expressions over and over again that I had not been taught in uh, in my training, and I didn't quite have the tools to decode them, but I did have enough that I could make a little bit of sense of it. So uh, to give you an example, and again, to, uh, to try not to go too far into the weeds, the way, uh, as you know, the way that we negate in English is is fairly simple, not, or some some version of no, or a, a contraction based on not. But the way you negate in Moroccan Arabic is with both a prefix and a suffix. You put ma at the beginning, and you put sh or she at the end of a word. You can do it with verbs, adjectives. You can do it with a with a number of words and expressions. So, anyway, I kept hearing this one expression, "muhalsh." I had no idea what it meant, but I knew that it was a negation. I had been given at least that that tool because I could hear I could hear the the negating parts of the word. It started with "m," mm, and it ended with "sh." So I thought, if I can just figure out what this word in the middle is, I'll know what the word means. I noticed that it was always used in situations where I could see it was a very useful expression. It was the word that you said to someone when they suggested something that they wanted you to do, and you didn't want to do it, but you wanted to let them down in an easy way. You just said, Mohaj. But I still didn't know what its components were. And finally, I found a native speaker who I could repeat the phrase to, and uh, he, he was actually my tutor. He was very good at uh, sorting out confusions of this kind. He identified the word in the middle, which is hal. It was hard for me to hear, but that was the word that I meant, just means atmosphere. And so the word just means this isn't the atmosphere. This isn't the setting in which the thing that you want to do should be happening, is what it means. But it's it's incredible shorthand for a fairly complicated idea. In English, I think we would have to say, eh, I'm not really in the mood, or eh, yeah, maybe we can do that later. Uh, or if you want to be more rude about it, you say, not now. But Moroccan Arabic has this, you know, one size fits all, very polite and useful expression, mohash. It's not the time for that to happen. In an indigenous language, I think the problem you have there is that the even the native speaker of the indigenous language may not recognize the lemma because they have only heard the word and used the word in its many different inflected forms. And so you may actually need some sort of computational analysis to figure out what is the lemma or what's the closest thing to the lemma that we can put in a dictionary so that the speaker of this language will be able to find where this word comes from. Is there any work being done on comparative lexicography where the meanings of words are studied with respect to change over time? I think in general, a dictionary that's put together on historical principles, and of course in English, the uh, the prime example is the Oxford English Dictionary. 
which gives the meaning of words as they've evolved over time. In other words, the first sense of a word that you see in the OED is the earliest sense, and it proceeds through there to the, the most recently developed senses. I think scholarship in a language has to go pretty long and deep before it's even reasonable to get to the stage of thinking about uh, that kind of historical dictionary because it, it requires a lot of resources. You, well, first of all, you, you need to have access to all of the preserved texts over time so that you can study the word in context. And European languages obviously have this because we've been printing them since the 15th century. Indigenous languages, unfortunately, have a much thinner corpus to rely on. There may be no written record before the 20th century of the language, and the system devised for writing that language may be one that's been imposed from the outside. Westerners may have come and said, well, why don't you use our alphabet with your language and we'll just make it work somehow. We'll add some extra squiggles, underlines, and other things so that we can reproduce all the sounds of your language. So it's much easier to do that in a language that has a very long history of print. And so many indigenous languages don't. You bring up a great point about the limitations to research or, you know, what do you, to take that to completion, what do you do with a language that only exists in an oral culture where you don't have formal writing as a, as a tradition for storing information for future generations? Now, going back to your experience in Morocco, I noticed when I went through your very impressive publication catalog, that you wrote several books on idioms, slang, and one book was even on rhyming, which I'll include links in the citations so viewers can check them out. But could you talk a little bit about why you were compelled to devote so much of your creative energy into works related to idioms, slang, and that specific niche within language? Well, all of the books came about for different reasons. My first language reference book was about the differences between British and American English. And a chief motivation for writing that book was just to keep all the differences straight in my mind, because I lived in the UK at the time, and I was constantly running into differences where Americans had one way of saying something and, and Britain said it in a different way. And since I was working on dictionaries at the time, it was very important that I kept these distinctions apart. The longer I lived in the UK, I wouldn't say that I forgot uh, my American English at all, but I wasn't using it regularly. And so the longer I was there, the more natural it was for me for the British expression to come up to my mind, especially if I was communicating with British people, because if I used the American one, they wouldn't know what I was talking about. So that book was really just an attempt to record the many, many differences that I was aware of between the two. Next was my book about slang. That was a commission from Merriam-Webster. I had done some work with them already on uh, some dictionaries and reference uh, reference books, and so I had a good relationship with an editor there. And he asked me if I would write a book, uh, a book about slang for the English learner. And I was very interested in doing this, in, in a way for reasons that, that we've already talked about. When you're learning, uh, obviously, we all have a good grasp on the slang of our own language, especially if we're young, because uh, if we're young, that is our language. The, sli the slang of, uh, of our first language is our, is, is our first language. But when you're learning a second language, chances are you're learning the textbook variety of it. 
And it's so frustrating when you study hard and you do great on your tests uh, and you think, wow, I've, I've really nailed this. I've nailed this sucker. But then you go out and talk to people and it's almost as if they're speaking a different language. They are not speaking the textbook version of the language. They're speaking a much more informal register, which in many cases we can just say is, is the slang of the language. So I was eager to, uh, to write that book because I had been a, a teacher of English uh, as a foreign language. That's, that's how I earned my keep in Morocco. And I knew the frustrations of, from my own experience of Moroccan Arabic, I knew the frustrations of using the language on the street as opposed to studying it in a book. If you're really going to become uh, conversant or fluent in another language, you need to speak it the way people speak it on the street, uh, not the way people speak it at the academic conference. So the purpose of the slang book was to introduce English learners to English slang in small digestible pieces uh, in a way that they could uh, they could absorb to isolate the patterns of slang that they would see how it's all connected. Uh, to, to give you an example, we have all these informal contractions in English in which the word to becomes part of a contraction. So we have wanna for want to and we have gonna for going to uh, for going to. And the sound is always the same. But if you just hear gonna or wanna, you don't know that uh, in the case of gonna, that ing has been dropped. In the case of wanna, that mt has been dropped. You know, different letters are being dropped, but in a way they're, they're similar, uh, similar contractions. So in the book, I tried to isolate patterns in slang that would enable an English learner to make the connection between the textbook English that they were already studying and the English that they heard on the street when they were trying to talk to other people their age. Because there, there is obviously a disconnect there, and it's disheartening if your goal is to be able to talk to native speakers of the language you're learning, but it seems like they're speaking a language that you're not actually studying. That was the purpose of that book. What about your work on idioms? Because I know this is something that you've also spent some time on. Could you talk a little bit just like in the last example? Sure, yeah. I, I think you, you're, pro you're talking about, about this book, right? Which is really, uh, it, it's more centered on cliches, but as you know well, uh, many idioms are considered cliches. That's a book that I had the idea for myself just because I was fascinated by, by the use of cliches. We all use them, but we also pretty much uniformly disparage them. So why do we use these forms of language that we think are awful? What role do they play in ordinary communication? Are there times when it's appropriate or better to use cliches than not? And uh, and why are they disparaged? I had a good relationship already with Oxford University Press because they had brought out one of my other books. And they had the best corpus going. So I, I, I approached them with the book idea because I wanted to use their corpus to do research. Obviously, many other corpora available uh, today were kind of spoiled for resources in English. But at the time, from, from having worked on many different dictionaries and worked with different corpora, I knew that Oxford's was the best for what I wanted to do because it had the most metadata, the most information about where all of its language was sourced. And I knew that would help me to isolate what genres of literature, particular cliches were more likely to be found in. You know, what is, in other words, is this a cliche from journalism? Is this a cliche from sports broadcasting? 
Are you most likely to hear this cliche from a writer about religion or in law or something? And the Oxford corpus has metadata for all of that, uh, which many other corporate don't have. So I knew that that would be useful to me. And they said, sure, uh, we'll publish the book. You use our corpus, our, our uh, corpus, and, you know, make sure you tell everyone it was the Oxford corpus, which, of course, I do in the introduction to the book. So I put together, a, first, I put together a spreadsheet of things that I thought could be considered a cliche in, in various contexts. And then I looked at the data. I spent about a year calling up instances of, uh, of various expressions, idioms, cliches, ordinary everyday expressions to see how they were used and to see why it was that in some contexts people would call these things cliches. Uh, because normally when we identify something as a cliche, we're disparaging it. Uh, it's just a way of dinging either the writer or or the writing for not being adequately creative. In other words, a cliche is kind of a, it's a missed opportunity to be creative. Rather than saying something in an original way, you just trot out the way that people have expressed this idea over such a long period that we're all tired of it now and it's become trite and not very impactful. What do you think is the role of psychology when it comes to lexicography or dictionaries or anything else that's in your path or, or visual field on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. I, th I think we're, we're coming to a time when psycholinguistics is going to, well, if it hasn't already come into its own, it's about to. Because as you know, and especially with the, the release of chat GPT, what we're seeing in a kind of alarming way is that a computer can now produce language that for most purposes seems to be produced by a human. It's not always easy to tell whether language that we are reading is being produced immediately by a human mind or, or whether it's been synthesized by a computer. So it's important for us now more than ever to understand how it is that our brains process language, how it is that we're able to just manipulate uh, these little bits of flesh uh, in our mouth and throat and lips produce these funny sounds, and then the person hearing them actually knows what to do uh, on the basis of that. And obviously, when when, when those sounds are encoded in, uh, in, in, in written words, that's, uh, it's one step removed from the actual production of language, but it's still the same problem. How is it that we process language, and how is it that now machines can seem to process language as if they are humans, but we know that they're not? Our ability to do it has obviously evolved over millennia on the basis of our common apparatus. We all have the same sense organs and we all have the same speech productive organs. And so we can communicate with a confidence that we will be understood. But now we get this real shock in learning that a computer also seems to be capable of communicating with a confidence that it will be understood and we may not be able to tell the difference. If we're told that the text that we're reading or listening to was generated by a computer, then we'll probably believe that it was. But if we aren't told that, how are we to know? So I think it's it's more important than ever for us to understand how our embodiment in this skin envelope that we all carry around with us really makes us unique because in terms of language production now, it doesn't seem to be that unique after all. Uh, computers are doing a pretty good job of it. 
do you think that more people in linguistics, studying linguistics, grammar, lexicography, and so forth, do you think more of these individuals should or should have some sort of incentive to be more engaged with other fields where their services are really required? Yeah, yeah, I, I felt that way for a long time, and I, I think again to give to give credit to my uh, to my first boss at uh, University of Colorado, she hired me because I was a lexicographer. She was a linguist, but she was also a computer scientist. In her capacity as a linguist, I think she had seen the importance of dictionaries and lexicography and felt that the uh, the work that we do was not adequately addressed in uh in natural language processing and uh in computational contexts it, it goes the other way too i think if you're a linguist these days you're not going to get much of a job if you don't really educate yourself in in computer science if you're uh, a, a linguist or a linguistics major and you want to be able to pay off all of your loans very quickly then you should be a computer science minor because that's where you're going to get a job by combining those two things, uh, computer science and, and linguistics. It's pretty inescapable now that computers are an essential and indispensable part of our everyday lives. But, you know, may, may, maybe the world that everyone is, that we're all kind of rushing headlong into without realizing it, is where computers are just other consciousnesses. They're, they are other assumed agents who have the capacity of language and who we can therefore assume we can address in the same way that we address another person and expect a, a similar response, expect a response of the same kind that we would get back from a person. Obviously, there are great dangers in that as well. What you referred to recently, the jailbreaking, and then there was also the the article in the, uh, in the New York Times of a, a reporter who had had a long conversation with, I think it was with Microsoft's chat engine, and the thing had just become an unhinged, began to say a lot of really alarming things. So, yeah, there are a lot of surprises down the road. And both linguistics, uh, well, linguistics, computer science, and psychology are all going to play a big role in how we come to understand these things and probably how we come to decide on what limitations we want to put on them. Because we will have to put limitations on them. Otherwise, I think they could become very dangerous. If I may use a, a cliche that seems to me to be most appropriate, we are really entering a brave new world. Yeah. When it comes to the things that we have to figure out in the unknown unknowns. And now for this last bit, I want to get your opinion on something that relates back as promised to something that you had mentioned earlier about perception and so forth. There's a wonderful scholar named Julian Jaynes who in the seventies wrote a book called The Origin of Consciousness. In the breakdown and, of the bicameral mind, yeah. Yeah. So he has a wonderful chapter on defining what consciousness is and indicating that it generates our awareness of the world and it plays a it holds a station of high importance when it comes to everything, specifically the role of metaphor and idioms. And one passage I found kind of disturbing at, at first. He said that language is an organ of perception. And this is kind of an alarming statement. And I'll tell you why. First, think of your sense perception you have. You have obviously smell, you have taste, you have vision, you have hearing, and you have touch. And an argument that that language is an organ of perception, you think, well, 
if you hear language or you read it, that's really visual or that's that might be auditory. But then I came across this thought experiment after several years of thinking about matter. Imagine you, you're looking at your mobile device and you get an email with distressing news, whether some distressing news related to your profession or a family member, and you break out, you start panicking and you have a physiological reaction. When you really break that situation down, your physiological reaction isn't predicated on corporeal danger that's near you. It's completely transmuted from what you're either seeing, hearing, or reading. And it has a direct result into how you engage with the world, how you perceive danger and everything. And from that standpoint, I'm, I'm coming to be quite convinced the language is not only important for human studying human psychology, but that it is an organ of perception. I'm curious about your thoughts or reactions to this thought experiment, which I just noted. Conveniently, I think it goes back to something that I was talking about at the beginning, namely semiotic. The reason all of this works is because we agree that one thing can stand for another, one thing can represent another. In other words, that a sign is a valid thing. When we see the sign, we know the thing that it represents, the thing that it lies behind. And our consensus about that, our confidence that linguistic signs carry meaning, uh, that rely they reliably represent the things that we have been uh, that we have learned that they represent. So when we when a piece of news comes to us in that form, you know, as you say, a, a written notification, a text on our telephone, we're able to make the we're able to discern the meaning. We can make the connection between the words and the thing that the words stand for. The name that comes to mind here, and I'm and I'm very happy that I can say this name at, at the end of our interview because because he is my god, Charles Saunders Peirce. He was the pioneer in the field of semiotic uh, and, and signs. Most of all of his most important writing is devoted to understanding this relationship between a sign and a thing it stands for. Uh, he devised a, a brilliant typology of signs, the different kinds of signs. He talked a great deal about how it is that language, which is a, a, a I think as we've implied by now, a very elaborate system of signs how it can be uh, a medium of meaning, how it can convey meaning. All of it depends on, on semiotics, the notion that there is a sign and the sign represents a thing, and we are confident in that relationship. When we see the sign, we know that it refers to the thing. So yeah, I would, I would send everyone to read their purse. He makes this clearer than any other writer does, which is not to say that he makes it easy to understand, but he understands it and writes about it in a way that's more convincing, I think, than anyone else. I'll make sure to add a link to that resource, and I'll make sure to add it to our citations. And as always, Warren, it was a real pleasure to get a chance to speak with you, and I hope we can stay in touch and talk more about these topics once again. And most importantly, good luck at the conference. I'm sure other people will be very excited to go there and to learn more about it. Yeah, I, I hope so. I look forward to uh, to seeing you there and uh, and everyone else who comes. It'll be it'll be a great time.